1 Thessalonians 5, 12. I'm going to read verses 12 through 28 to the end of the book. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit, Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. This is an interesting passage at the end of 1 Thessalonians. You get the idea that uh, almost as if Paul is running out of ink or out of time, and he, he shoots out these brief little summary commands and he could have expanded on every one of these. He could have opened up every one of them. And he just bang, 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 hits one after the other, one bullet point after another of these commands, especially starting in verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything. Abstain from every form of evil. And he gives us this kind of barrage of commands. The one I want to focus on this morning is in verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. What does that mean? When we read do not quench the Spirit, I think it strikes us as odd. It strikes us as strange because, number one, why say that here? In the middle of all these commands, why do not quench the Spirit? That just seems strange. Um, But I think it seems strange to us for a bigger reason. I think it seems strange to us because we have no... Our experience doesn't make that command make sense. What do you mean, quench the Spirit? You mean the Holy Spirit? Who's He? What does that mean? Isn't that just kind of weird? I believe our experience in our lives as individual Christians and as a church often, doesn't measure up, doesn't, doesn't allow us to make sense of that command. So what does it mean? I want to open that up for you by asking you another question. Does our experience of the Christian life or our experience of life as a church have any resemblance to what we read about in the New Testament? And you could say, well, sure it does, right? I mean, we have sermons, we have prayers, we have the Lord's Supper, we have fellowship, we have baptisms, we have 
you know, all the kinds of things that, that the New Testament talks about. So yeah, we have all the kinds of things that are normal in the life of the church of the New Testament. Are you sure? How closely does your life, the experience of your life, and our experience as a body resemble what we really read about in the, in the New Testament? How closely does it really resemble? I'm going to read several passages to you, and you can think about this. How closely does your experience of being a Christian and being a part of a church resemble this? Acts 2, 42-47. Just listen as I read. He says, the new, These disciples, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Continually devoting themselves. Continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's Scripture and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Is that even close to to our experience, continually devoting ourselves to those things? It says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. When was the last time you kept, or when's the last time you felt a sense of awe? Seriously, when's the last time you felt a sense of awe? Was it at the movie theater? You know, the latest, you got the Dolby sound, you've got the special effects, and you felt, wow. Right? Was that the last time you ever felt a sense of awe? Is there any other time in your life where you feel a sense of awe? This says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. It was normal. They were amazed. They were in awe. They were amazed at what God had done. He says, And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, day after day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, day after day. It was a normal occurrence. Day by day, the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. Does that ring any bells with us? Is that, does that, is that part of our experience? What about this? 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. And Paul says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Is that what you're used to, hearing the preaching of the Word in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Or this, 1 Corinthians 12, 4-11. Paul says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, the same Holy Spirit. 
And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What's the word manifestation mean? It means to make something obvious, to make it clear, to open it up, to uncover it, to make it obvious to everyone. He says to each one of us is given the obviousness of the Spirit for the common good. Where is the obviousness of the Spirit in your life? Where is the sign? Where is the, the clarity, the clearness, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good? It's for us as a body. Where do you see that in, your, in yourself? The manifestation of the Spirit. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the, same, by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. Where's our experience with that stuff? Or this, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-5. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Is that how the Word of God comes to you? Power. The Holy Spirit. Full conviction. He says, I know that you're elect of God. I know that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you like that. So that's our life as a church. Is that, is that the... The atmosphere of our church, the power of God, the Holy Spirit, full conviction. The manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What about in your own personal experience of knowing God? Is it anything like this? Romans 5, 1-5. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. Exult with a U means we jump up and down and we are happy. We exult in, in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but also we also exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Do you know what it means in your experience to have the, the love of God poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit that He's given to us? Or what about this, Romans eight fourteen to 17 For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. This is nothing remarkable. This is nothing out of the ordinary. This is normal. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. I, many of us, I believe, feel like we're slaves and we live in fear. 
But God says, you have not been given a spirit of slavery that leads to fear again. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Do you have that experience of knowing what it is to have the Holy Spirit come to you and say, you're a son of God? His Spirit testifying with your spirit that you're a child of God, causing you to call out to God, Abba, Father, I'm, I love you. There's intimacy. There's warmth. There's personal connection. Abba, Father, is there any experience of that in your life? What about this one? Again from Romans 8, 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We know what it's like not to know how to pray, right? Everyone can relate to that. But do you know what it is to have the Holy Spirit interceding for you, within you, with groanings too deep for words? And he, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Or this, Ephesians 1, 17-21. Paul is praying for us, and he prays for us and says... I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. Do you have a sense of the surpassing greatness of the power of God that's for you who believe? He says, this power is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Do you have a taste of the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, working in you through his Holy Spirit? Do you know what it is to have power against your sin, power for obedience? Or this, Ephesians three fourteen to 19 Again, another prayer. And Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner man. Have you tasted that? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Or this, Philippians 3, 7-11. Paul says of himself, But whatever things were gained to me, my education, my money, my social standing, all of it, my family, my heritage, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He wasn't just being theoretical. He had lost all things for the sake of knowing Christ. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. He says, I count them all but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. If any sense of that, desire, If I can't have Jesus, I will die. I will lose everything for the sake of knowing him. Is there any of that in your life? Or this, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Peter says to people that he's never met before, all he knows is that they're Christians. And he says to them, and though you have not seen him, although you have not seen Jesus Christ, there's one thing I know about you. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, I know this much, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Do you, do you taste that? Paul says, Peter says, the one thing I know about you if you're a Christian, you haven't seen Jesus, but you believe in him, I know that you love him, and I know that you rejoice with this inexpressible and glorious joy. That's what I know if you're a Christian. Do you, do you have any sense of that? Have you ever had a taste of that? Or is your experience in the church and your personal experience in your own life as a Christian more like what Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 3, 1-5? Listen to these words. He says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now you hear that list of stuff and you say, yeah, that's, those pagans are awful, aren't they? Is he talking about unbelievers in that passage? Is he talking about people outside the church in that passage? Not at all. How do we know? That's what he says next. He sums up the whole thing like this. Holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. These aren't people who, are, who make no claim to being Christians. These are people inside the church. They hold a form of godliness. What does that look like? Looks like all the things I just listed to you about, you know, well, we have sermons and we have prayers and we have communion and we have baptism and we have fellowship and we. Well, that's what they had. They had a form of godliness. But they utterly denied the power of godliness. This is a description of, of, of churches that have turned away from the Holy Spirit, that have turned away from the power of the Holy Spirit. 
They can have everything else perfectly, perfectly correct. So tell me, what is your experience of the Christian life and the church like? Does your experience resemble any of these passages that I've read to you? These are passages that are just assumed to be normal, the normal experience of the life of Christians and the life of churches. Does your experience of the Christian life and of the church have anything to do with that? Now, some of you are uptight simply because I'm using the word experience. And you've been led to believe that the Christian life has nothing to do with experience. You've been led to believe that the greatest mark of a Christian is, is not some kind of religious experience. No, that's, that's so lowbrow, you, you see. But a right grasp of doctrinal truth, that's what Christian, Christianity is all about. It's simply a right grasp of doctrinal truth. And you've been led to believe that the mind is what matters, certainly not the emotions, and certainly not the body. It's all here. Now, does that version of Christianity have any resemblance to what we read about as normal in the New Testament? Any resemblance at all to the things that I've just read to you? None. Do you know in your experience, you, in your experience, personally, do you know what it is to greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory? Do you know what it feels like to be amazed by the glory of God? Do you know in your experience what it is to have the Holy Spirit come to you and pour out the love of God in your heart, to, to peel back the curtain, to show you what the love of God looks like and to be moved by it? For Him to bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, to be faced with the temptation to sin, and to be able to say, no, I, I don't have to go there. I have the power of the Spirit of God in me, and I can say no to ungodliness and worldly lust. Do you have any experience of that power? Do you have the Holy Spirit Himself crying out within you, Abba, Father, a sense of intimacy and closeness with Him as your Father? Do you have the Holy Spirit meeting with you as you pray and filling you with groanings too deep for words? Do you have any experience of what it is to have Jesus Christ Himself dwelling in your heart by faith, to know the power of the resurrection of Jesus filling you, to comprehend and to know in your experience, to taste the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, to have a, just a little glimpse of that? Do you know in your experience what it is to be filled up to all the fullness of God? Do you know what it is to want to know Jesus Christ so much, to want to know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, that you're willing to lose everything to get it? Do you have any experience in your life of this power of God that is at work in you who believe? power of God within you that's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that you can ask or imagine? Do you have any knowledge of that, any experience of it? Do you know what it is to have the gospel preached to you, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction? If we don't know anything of that in our experience, what's wrong? 
Well, I'll tell you what I think is wrong. We have no experience of these things because we have no expectation of them. We have no faith whatsoever that any of that can actually be true for us. Why don't we have any expectation of these things being normal among us and in us? It could be several reasons. Maybe we have a theology that has locked up all of those things, all of those experiences in a bygone era. That's, that's many of us, isn't it? Those things are what happened back then. That has nothing to do with us. We're beyond that now. You know, and the, the arguments for that say, we have, the, we have the Bible now. And therefore, we don't need the Holy Spirit. And so, that kind of thing just doesn't happen anymore. So we've settled into this routine of flatness, of blandness, of grayness, of drabness, of powerlessness, of faithlessness. Or maybe we have a theology that has trained us well to focus only on the mind. So I was talking about a second ago. The emotions and the body have nothing to do with true religion at all. Maybe you've come from a background like the background that I've come from, where in a, in a group of pastors, a group of churches that I was in, and all the pastors were together in their annual meeting, and one man was presenting a lecture on preaching to the other pastors. And his bottom line, the summary of everything that he said was, listen, you need to preach in such a way that if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, at least you had a good lecture. Here's an idea. Let's plan on the Holy Spirit not showing up. Let's have no expectation whatsoever that he'll show up. And we'll have a good lecture. You know what? The Holy Spirit won't show up because he doesn't bless lectures. The purest form of Christianity, you know, according to that mindset, is what happens between the six inches, the six inches between your ears. That's all there is. If you get the ideas right, if you get the form right, if you get the concepts right, and anything that has to do with the emotions or with experience is dangerous. We don't want to go there because, you know, it's dangerous. Yeah, it's dangerous, all right. Which really gets closer to the real reason we're afraid. We're afraid of losing control. We're afraid of looking silly. We're afraid of looking like fanatics or religious weirdos or unsophisticated nut jobs. And you know what else we're afraid of? We're afraid of, we're afraid of, of obeying God. We don't want to have to obey God. We don't have to give up our sin. We don't want to have to actually obey the things that God has commanded us. That's scary. And so we run away. Which really gets closer to the real reason why we don't experience these things normally. It's because we're proud. And in our pride, we have erected a safe zone in our lives and in our church that will always insulate us from knowing and experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. We've made a very comfortable, very safe religion for ourselves that will allow us to be religious and soothe our consciences, but never have to come face to face with the living God. We can have the form of godliness and no power. And many of us are absolutely content with that. And so, of course, we don't know anything about what Christians for thousands of years have always seen as perfectly normal. 
course, if we don't want to actually experience the power of God moving in us and among us and through us, then we won't expect it. And if we don't expect it, we will not experience it. So where are you? Do you have any expectation that the things we have just read in the, in the New Testament are even possible for us? And if you do think that they're possible, do you think that they're desirable? Do you want them? There are many commands in Scripture that we, that we choose to ignore. Here's one of them. 1 Corinthians 12.31 But earnestly desire the greater gifts. Or 1 Corinthians 14.1 Pursue love, yet desire earnestly the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Or 1 Corinthians 14.39 Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Do those verses mean anything to us today? Or have we very conveniently come up with a system of, of truth that says, well, actually, no, that has nothing to do with me. I'm really glad it has nothing to do with me because I don't want to have anything to do with that. What other commands in Scripture do you, don't have anything to do with you? The ones you don't like? Do those commands mean anything? At the very least, we can all agree that they mean we should desire the Holy Spirit to work in and among us. Even if we have disagreements about what it will actually look like, we have to agree that we should want the Holy Spirit to work among us. And if you don't want that, then... You're a rebel against God, and you want nothing to do with Him. All you want is the form of godliness. No power, just the form, just the husk, just the shell. And one of the most precious words of our Lord, He encourages us to both want the Holy Spirit and to ask for the Holy Spirit. Luke 11, 9-13. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of your fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give what? The Holy Spirit to who? To those who ask. Ask. If, if you read these passages of Scripture, if you hear me read them to you, and you say, you know what, I have no experience of that. I mean, maybe a, an inkling. Maybe a taste, but man, it's not anywhere near what I want my life to look like as I measure myself against the normal standard of Scripture. What do you do? What do you do? Ask. Seek. Knock. Your Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. 
We don't have because we don't ask. Now, what will it look like if we do ask and if he does hear us? It'll look like all the things I've read to you. I just want to read one more passage. And this is Acts 1, 4-8. Gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for that which the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from, of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Here we are, in the remotest part of the earth. And the Holy Spirit will give you power. Power to do what? Power to be witnesses. And of course, that's exactly what happened to these men. God transformed them from a huddling, scared, discouraged, hiding band of refugees to men who turned the world upside down. He turned Peter from a man who was afraid of a little girl to a man who was bold as a lion and who stood in front of the the council, the high court of Israel, and said, You killed him. And you must repent. This is what will happen to you if you expect the Holy Spirit to come on you. But of course, if you don't want that, and if you don't expect that, then you will not ask, and you will not receive. Are you seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you even want to be? Or are you afraid of what it will mean? Are you afraid of what you'll have to do? Are you afraid of what you'll have to say? Are you afraid of losing your comfort or losing your control of your life? Are you afraid of losing your dignity? If you're a child of God, if you've come to Jesus Christ in humility and faith, these things that I've read about are your birthright. They're yours. You, you may not decide not to have them. They're yours. And God commands us in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. Will we obey this command or will we ignore it? This is why Jesus came. He came to pour out His Spirit on us. Don't despise the Holy Spirit of God. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you have not bowed to Him as Lord, if you have not come to Him for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have not turned away from your sin and your self-righteousness and your rebellion and turned to Him in faith, then I urge you and I command you to repent and believe the good news. Believe that you are condemned before the holy wrath of God. Believe that... There is nothing you can do in yourself to change that and believe that Jesus Christ is a willing, able Savior who will set you free from all of your sins. And if you do, God will pour out on you the promised Holy Spirit. That's exactly what He said He would do. Come to Him. Come to Him. Taste and see that He is good.
and that he is filled with power and might. Let's pray together.